Second Star to the Left, a podcast on everything fantastic, strange, and science fictional. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. I'm Bert. I'm Chris. And I'm Katie. This week we're discussing the 2004 Guillermo del Toro film, Hellboy. Watch your hands and elbows. Pardon? (sighs) Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. And we are the ones who bump back. Hellboy. Just as a caution to our listeners, this week we'll be discussing uh, some topics including potential domestic abuse and violence, and that might be part of our discussion. So, uh, what was y'all's experience with this film? So I really like this movie, but I've always really enjoyed this movie. I've read the comics, I've read BPRD, so I, it's I'm always going to like it. There's of course like things rewatching it where I'm like, yeah, it's a little cheesy now. Um, maybe not the best storytelling, but for 2004, like I remember loving this movie. Yeah, I mean, I saw this movie a bunch of times as a kid, and uh, I really liked it for a long time this like last viewing is definitely my kind of like come into reality moment about it and i enjoyed it less than i have enjoyed it in the past so for whatever that's worth um but we'll go into details of like why that is certainly for myself um like katie i'm a big hellboy fan i love mike mignola's artwork uh it's one of my favorite comic book artists and I really loved the character of Hellboy. I think it's helpful, too, to kind of distinguish, you know, that Mignola's work um, in Hellboy, or Mignola's work in Hellboy and the movies, uh, both Mignola and Del Toro have been pretty clear that they're sort of different characters. And so that's something to think about as, you know, you might be interested in exploring more of the Hellboy comic versus the Hellboy movie. I'll also note that I've seen the most recent Hellboy movie, and that's sort of what inspired us to have this discussion about Hellboy, the 2004 film, today. Um, and spoiler alert, this is a much better film, even though we'll probably get into some of the problems that we have with this particular iteration of the character. Yeah. Um, I'm Bert, so I hate fun. Uh, <laughs> I did I did not hate this movie. Um, it was okay. Uh, it's like a, I would probably say a 6.5 out of 10. Yes, I'm enough, enough of a jerk to rate on a 0.5 scale, but... Um, that's kind of, like, a very frustrating area for a movie to be for me, because, like, it, it could be a lot better, um, but it's got a lot of flaws. Uh, I didn't know... I'd never seen it before. I didn't really know much about the comic. Uh, I knew the artwork, which I thought was great. It's very stylistic, um, a lot of dark shadows, which I really love. I know nothing about the plot or concept, really, other than, you know, it's Hellboy. He's a boy from hell. I actually was talking to my mom about the podcast because my mom was podcast. Hi, mom. And because um, we were talking about like 
Fury Road. She's like, oh, I've never seen that. I was like, you need to watch that. And, she's, and then she's like, what are you doing this week? I'm like, Hellboy. She's like, oh, I've seen that 20 times or something. I'm like, how have you seen Hellboy like so many times? Uh, I guess it's on TV a lot. It was okay. The directing was definitely very good. Uh, shot composition was great. A lot of issues that we'll get into when we get so, there. So um, in this film, uh, we see we're, we are introduced to the character of Hellboy, a small, seemingly half-demon, half-human creature uh, summoned via a Nazi experiment hosted by Rasputin Grigori. Hellboy is taken in um, as part of a secret Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense and raised by a professor, Professor Bloom, who trains him and serves as a surrogate father. Rasputin is brought back to life by his evil Nazi girlfriend and aided by a undead Nazi assassin to summon the eldritch horrors and ancient gods that once ruled our planet, bringing about the end of the world via Hellboy. Along the way, he's assisted by uh, Abe Sapien, a merman of sorts, and Liz, his ex-girlfriend, kind of, who is a fire starter or pyro. And she has a beautiful name. Oh my god! <laughs> was that the life of the movie? Yes. It's such a weird, oh. like there's several oh. Oh. just like very weird moments where it's just like, I'm not totally sure how these words ended up in the script yes. and then like <laughs> yeah. got past everybody and then ended up in the movie. And then like, I watched it a bunch and was like, yeah, that's okay. That's things humans would say. Epic. There's still definitely things like from like when I first watched it that I'll still hone in on even like years later. I'm like, no, that doesn't, that still doesn't <laughs> fit any. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm like with you. Like what? How did this... Just why? How? Yeah. So, well, I think this is a good point then. Let's start talking about sort of adapting Hellboy to the screen. So, this was a project of Del Toro's. So, to kind of situate this within his career, he's coming off Blade 2, which is a very fun film, but I wouldn't say a great film, and uh, adapting Mignola's work. And who... Mignola had been writing Hellboy, I think, for almost a decade by this point. I could be wrong, Katie. I don't know if you know this one. Oh, I don't know, honestly, um, the publication history. Because, like, a lot of them are only, like, vaguely, like, linear for the Hellboy yeah. comics. Well, and that's a good that's a good thing to bring up, that the Hellboy comics are sort of almost vignettes, little tiny parables of Hellboy, this character, interacting with mature adult fairy tales, but not in the sense of, like, fables or like once well, upon like a time folklore it is a lot of it folklore, is like yes. hellboy inserted into mythology and folklore from all over the world yes yeah the vibe i got was like john constantine <laughs> yeah type things right it's, it's all yeah especially okay. the biblical references and stuff i believe even hellboy has interacted with constantine in the dc universe probably so that's sort of like this adaptation and so the whole mythos of Hellboy as this um, character to bring about the apocalypse was actually something that emerged over time in Mignola's writing of the character in his comics that wasn't like a forefront structure of Hellboy as a character, at first anyway. And so I think that's kind of interesting to think about how like when you're adapting this like very moody and um, evocative comic into a movie you have to sort of like fit it into this container and structure that I don't think the character um, really fits into. So that's really interesting. You're saying like the stuff towards the end of this movie isn't really 
tied into the mythos or, or lore of the character, and that's kind of it, added by Del Toro? No, it is. It's in the comics. It just didn't start off initially that way. Oh, okay. The concept of Hellboy having a destiny to bring about the end of the world was something that emerged over time. Whereas, like, the first sort of, like, interaction with him, he's um, basically almost like a Sherlock Holmes-ish character. Sherlock is probably the wrong term, but a, an investigator detective who's exploring sort of a New England... He's like a Raymond Chandler detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah in a supernatural sense. And uh, Lovecraft was a very strong influence on Mignola's work um, in creating and developing the character. You see lots of reference okay. to eldritch horror and sort of like old evil gods um old families having secrets like yeah that's something i really liked in this a lot was was elements of that especially near the end it was like i i love this kind of stuff the the weird um the occult we're not giving you everything that there is to know about this. It's just vaguely mysterious and foreboding and creepy. I, I like all that. Um, yeah, it, but it doesn't... It's so weird how the movie jumps around to it. It's it's like at the, at the beginning and the end, and sometimes in the middle, very, very minute. When adapting the film, Del Toro um, had been talking with Mignola about sort of the character and sort of his own iteration on it. And I think Ron Perlman was also pretty influential in the development and portrayal of the character. I think Ron Perlman is someone that, first off, Del Toro worked with uh, Blade II, the previous film that he'd worked on. Ron Perlman has like a big history. He is the prosthetics guy. Like, it's kind of a treat to see him doing this character just because he has his own spin on it. But it's also like, he brings the character to life in, I think, a way that few actors can because... He had such a long history of using prosthetics. Um, he was a star of a, a Beauty and the Beast TV series. Um, <laughs> it, my mom was a huge fan I of it. I vaguely remember being aware of that, but I don't <laughs> know anything about it. I do yeah. love Ron Perlman in this movie. Like, holy cow. Yeah, Ron Perlman uh, was pretty influential in the character. See, okay, like watching it, I can tell I can tell he he was... It's, it's part of him... I don't know how how similar to the comic the character is. Is the character a little more downplayed in the comic, or is it still very? It feels almost Spider-Man-y. I mean, he's a titular <laughs> very... character. I think sure. you're touching on sort of an adolescence to the character. Yes, and I think that that adolescence usually isn't a focus of the comics. Like, he tends to be more... I'm curious what Katie's thoughts on this one is. My impression of Hellboy has been a almost... Who's the character from Die Hard? Oh, Mike... John McClane. So, uh, Hellboy almost is like a paranormal John McClane to me. He takes a tremendous beating. He's very uh, cynical and very um, gruff. But he has, like, a heart of gold. Yeah... It it makes I feel like Ron Perlman makes it work, and if it wasn't Ron Perlman, it would absolutely not work. But it's still like it's just kind of weird. The character goes from like I don't give a shit about anybody to I love these very specific people to I'm trapped here and I want to get out to I 
I mean, I guess it's all, it's multifaceted, but it's also kind of like, um, I don't know. It's like, sometimes it's ultra serious. Sometimes it's good. It's, it's the same problem that the whole movie has for me is the tone. The tone is all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's just, sometimes we're doing visceral, uh, violence and, and serious, like danger. And other times we're doing wacky, um, we have to save the box of kittens um, everybody's punching each other and laughing about it, and they don't even really care. In a weird way, I tend to think of that scene where Hellboy uses the that uh, occult's device to find the talker, the Russian, the skeleton. Mm-hmm. That one scene is exactly how a Hellboy comic should, well, it would feel, and I wish the whole movie was that scene, in a way. Like, that was a really great, to me, summation of Hellboy as, as sort of like who knows the occult, who uses it in the work that he does. It's like a tool for him. Yeah, he's like a like I guess like a MacGyver in that way too, and that it yeah. is like very much like investigative. Definitely has to fight sometimes, but is very resourceful and has a wealth of knowledge at his disposal because of his upbringing. Yes, occult MacGyver is a really great way to describe him. <laughs> That's kind of the only time in the movie I felt like he was useful i mean he took a beating the rest of the time but like like outside of physically that was the only time i really felt like he was like bringing something to the table like abe did a lot more work during the rest of the movie to to solve things and figure things out or the other characters in general um he felt kind of saddled with a lot of other baggage and then there's uh the main character which is uh, well not the main character because you know he's the titular character but the the audience the audience surrogate character sorry did you say titular titular i heard like titular like sorry i was gonna say like i like i definitely heard titty in there that's that's okay he's the titty well he's got some you know some some biceps on not biceps yes pecs pecs you know, wow. biceps, the titties of the arm. I tried to save it. I tried to save it, and it just this, got worse. This could be our worst uh, episode ever. Well, it's not worse. It's, it's just you know, it's it's the the classic the straight guys trying to be even more straight and just veered straight into homosexual, which is fine. Um, so the the human character was his name, John Myers. That's the most generic okay, well, name ever, but yeah. Yeah, I'm glad Wesley Crusher can still get roles in 2004, you know? That's all I thought when he came on screen. I was like, he's such a... <laughs> he's offensively bland. What? Isn't the, the actor's name is like Rupert or something? I don't know. I, I, I was, <laughs> Nobody I was, knows. No, I was motivated to look it up. <laughs> but um, I think like... That to me speaks again to the difficulties of adapting the book, like the the story, I guess, of Hellboy, or adapting the character, because the character is very obviously an audience surrogate to like explore this world of Hellboy, what's a normal human like, and at the same time he's like trying to be heroic. We set up a bizarre love triangle between him, Liz, and Hellboy, and that's <laughs> a very strange place for an audience surrogate to be, in my opinion. The love triangle is the weirdest part of the movie to me. Oh, yeah. Because it's really just him having a crush on Liz, but no, like, real explanation for why that is. And it... Because she's the like, girl. Because she's exactly. the girl. Yeah, exactly. And not the Nazi no, this, one. It's... So that's how you, like, well, my options are 
Nothing or the not, like, you know, that's, apparently that's it. That's the only two women that exist in this universe. It's definitely the the hunchback of, of Notre, Notre Dame thing, where um, it's like, there's a girl, and she is the prize. Who will win the prize at the end of the movie? I guess it's some condolence that, or some consolation that it's the hunchback who gets it, but it's still like, why is the woman a prize to be won by the male characters. It it doesn't feel... Especially given the way they present Liz in this movie and her backstory, I don't know. It's, she just feels like, man, very, very problematic in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, Do you want to start listing yeah. some of them? Because I have a few. Oof. Go Go for it, man. Well, it's mostly that she... The relationship between her and Hellboy strikes me as one sort of of, if not outright domestic abuse, sort of the nascent form of it. He's very controlling towards her. He is like sort of a... He is a toxic partner. He's controlling towards her. She ends up back with him for no reason except that like that's sort of like the her destiny almost. So I didn't get the impression that they dated before. It looked like more, for me, it was just more like we grew up together, essentially, because of having these weird powers. So, like, there was the the trifecta, I guess, of, like, her, Abe, and Hellboy, who just happened to, I think, like, live there. And she moved out because she didn't like it there anymore. But I didn't get the impression that they had dated previously. I had assumed they met through the FBI. No, because, like, he says, like, she left us, like... So she had been there, and she talks about normalcy and like living, I guess, like more or less like with them, or like at least in like on the same premises because of her, like a bit yeah. like you know that she couldn't keep it under control, and so she lived there. Okay, yeah, I definitely get the sense of toxicity in the sense that I feel like he is using his own insecurities to project that onto their relationship, in the sense of like guilt or you don't like me because i'm ugly don't you feel bad about th- i mean i don't know it's it's a weird kind of thing where i mean i'm sure that's a authentic thing for the character it, it definitely feels like a we're both screwed up so we should be together because we have that in common which is not a good basis for a relationship all, all kinds of stuff like that there's the weird domestic abuse angle or um she's just a very victimized character the movie explicitly explains that she's not, she doesn't really have a say in her future. She's just being dragged around to wherever. Right. She only even comes back to them because Rasputin puts a dream in her head that makes it happen. Like, he's the only driving force behind anything that happens in this movie. Yes. And, and uh, like, like does she end up happy at the end of the movie? I didn't even really get that. I mean, she she basically died and then she was like, thanks for saving my life and I like you. I don't know. She she doesn't really have much of an arc. It's just she kind of gets dragged along for the ride and is pretty miserable throughout the movie. Right. Um, and even at the end, it felt like it didn't really feel like a love scene so much as like, all right, well, I guess we're doing this. I guess <laughs> yeah. we're required to. <laughs> I guess we're required by Hollywood law to do this. <laughs> well, well um, that, to me, it's the that like for example, he does sort of this superhero or romantic lead trope where the force of his emotions is so strong that she basically has no choice but to end up with him 
I mean, that's pretty yikes, in my opinion. Is it? I mean, uh, is that accurate? Like, I mean, that's kind of like his like whole like end speech, where he tells her that he's going to go through. He said, you know, to whatever demons or monsters are across. I'm going to go like, kill God. <laughs> what? I said, I'm going to go kill yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He he pulls the the cloud strife i guess the the jrpg yeah. character <laughs> to be fair i would be um, up if someone told me that they were gonna go kill god for me because let's face it killing god would be dope but i mean yeah for sure <laughs> i definitely feel there's an there's an aspect of like this is what love is but like no it's it, it's, it's a bad portrayal of like relationships right. and agency and yeah definitely like oh, well, you know, temper is passion and passion is good in relationship and all this, like, really shitty and problematic, um, you know, equations uh, that people associate with that. You know, he's fiery and all these ways. Like, it's a little too on the nose and it's really unfortunate. And, like, this, the sequel, which I like better, actually, than the first one, has a bit more, I feel like, better representation of where their relationship goes i'm not saying it's necessarily like still great or healthy but i felt like it was a more realistic portrayal of like okay this is what happens when you know the hero gets the girl and now they live together you know Um, she gets to say no to him which is kind of interesting because she never says no really in this film yeah and the and the second one she's she's saying no to him a lot basically she's saying like get your shit together i don't want to live with all your cats and all your mess like and so she walks, you know, yeah. but not to spoil anything. But, like, so in that one, in the second one, I feel like she has a little bit more agency. It's still, like, very much, like, she, it's her story in relation to to Hellboy, which is still kind of problematic. But I feel like you get to see her more outside of being the love interest because now she, instead of being, like, the love interest, she's the established partner. Yeah, I feel like the best thing she gets in this movie is when Hellboy's listening in on her and Meyer's uh, through the wall which is ridiculous and I, I really felt the trope coming like he's gonna overhear them say something out of context and then think they love each other but like he's like oh do you feel that way about me and she's like oh guys are the same and I'm like thank you <laughs> for just shutting for just shutting this trope down as fast as possible like I, I don't need this scene to even go anywhere kill it while it's there and outside of that it it's just kind of a mess for her character. I have another topic, but I don't that I actually didn't bring up. But I don't know if you have somewhere else you want to go with the discussion with this. <laughs> is the is the origin story the same in the comics? I... In what sense? Yeah. Like in this, so the beginning of this movie I'd actually seen before because it was on TV somewhere, and I was like, "What the hell movie is this?" And then I I just went, "Okay, whatever," and then I stopped watching it. But so there's the whole portal thing, and then the the Nazi fight. They're just like, oh, look, there's a little devil boy. Let's take care of it. It's very weird. That's a good example of, like, the tonal shift. Cause it's, it's not, like, like, super sequential. Like, you have it shown in the movie. Like, there are, because it's vignettes, you kind of get flashbacks. Um, oh. So it he was raised. I think he did come through. The, I know he was summoned by Rasputin. He was raised by Professor Broom. Um, but you get a little bit more of his his childhood-like vignettes. Like, there's one that's just called Pancakes. Yes, he um, loves Pancakes. Pancakes is good. Like, <laughs> or, like, the, the Howdy Doody thing. Like, it's... It, there are, like, some really cute, like, moments where, you know, he's basically, like, recalling, you know, his his childhood a little bit. But it's it's more or less, like... The movie, I think, probably shows more. Like, it's definitely way more linear. 
telling than the comics are. It's also important to point out that like Hellboy comics are very much vignettes. The driver of the whole story in this agency, that's a whole different comic series. And that's the BPRD, which is the Bureau, the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense. Now that's basically everyone except Hellboy. It's Liz, it's Abe, it's a few other people. It's Dymo, it's um, Roger, the homunculus. Um, so you have like more of like what they actually do when Hellboy's off doing his own thing. They're like, you know, encountering their own uh, like monsters here and there and like how that how that goes down and that comic is more of a has more linearity and it's fewer uh vignettes okay yeah because basically the way the movie that the movie started and i'm like okay it's kind of like a weird jurassic parky beginning if you remember the beginning of jurassic park it's kind of like that it's like oh there's this weird occult stuff and nobody believes the professor dude and then they all go to have this big battle and then rasputin's like opens a portal and his skin's melting off and I'm like, okay, this is like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. This is all great. And then there's a big fight scene that's kind of visceral and violent. I'm like, okay. And then that's just over. And then it's like, oh, hey, I found a little, I found a little monkey devil boy. Ooh, let's give him candy bars. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, what happened? What what movie am I watching now? Because this immediately followed Blade 2 and like having just rewatched Blade 2, I'm like, there are so many scenes that seem like I couldn't, like if you just took out Hellboy, I would and I was, like, watching, like, from a distance, I'd be like, is this Blade 2 or is this Hellboy? Um, it's kind of how yeah, I felt. So, like, yeah, so, th- it's basically, like, someone, it's, like, Del Toro took Blade 2. It was like, what if we injected this other character instead of vampires in? Uh, and that's kind of how it plays out. Like, no, it's definitely not how the comics work. This is very much, as, as Matt said, like, this is very much Del Toro's interpretation of the comics. He was not trying to be true to the comics. Um, so... Yeah, like that's it's very much different. This is very much an action, like fantasy horror type movie. Okay, yeah, and I feel like he's what I, the big impression I got was that he's finding his footing in this movie as a writer, uh, as a director. He's great. Like, there's a lot of amazing shots and transitions and and framing in this what movie. What I really enjoyed is how I feel that he used action sequences to develop character. And I'm sort of drawing on the most recent Hellboy film where I think that they did a very poor job with this, where the action in the film is very much about just like what you do. It's exciting. It's visually stunning. But um, think of like the Matrix, like Neo fighting Agent Smith at the end of it is a very pivotal development in his character that we see reflected in the fight scenes themselves. And for me, I see like Del Toro taking scenes to sort of introduce Hellboy as the wryness of the character, for example, just like fighting the same monsters over and over again, getting the crap kicked out of him all the time. I just think like the way that he engages with like the Nazi assassin, like you, you see aspects of the character that happen through fights and through action, which I think is something that a lot of contemporary cinema could do a better job at in terms of using those fight sequences to tell us things about the characters. As opposed to just being spectacle. Yeah, the difference between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. That the fight section yeah, right. like, were a thing instead of just, like, you know, put on your 3D glasses or whatever. See, yeah, the hmm, the Matrix is actually a parallel I, I mentally drew with this movie. Very similar because, and I'd probably rate the Matrix about the same. Because the Matrix, I mean, the Matrix is an important film, but, like, I feel like stylistically... It's, it's awesome and very interesting, 
uh, from a directorial standpoint and a, and a visual standpoint and an effects, all, all that kind of stuff. But once you look at it on like a like a plot and and uh, how are they doing exposition and the writing and stuff, it's like uh, it's kind of substandard. It's 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 there. It's it's okay, but it's like it could be a lot better. But everything else is like supposed to distract you from that. Like it's <laughs> supposed to be like, hey, look how great it is. It doesn't really matter. That's how this movie kind of felt. Like anytime people were just standing talking, I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. Like. It's not doing much for me. There's a lot of really bad comedy in this. Not bad comedy. It's just kind of like nothing comedy in this movie. Yes. Which is bad comedy. <laughs> it could be worse. It's not like scary movie or something. Like, oh, well, you know, it's it's not like painful, but it's kind of like. Mm, yeah. I, we... oh, and a bunch of it is like those lines that you're just like, well, how did this end up in there? Like, I'm fireproof. You're not is just like a like we didn't set that up. There wasn't. <laughs> That wasn't a punchline to a thing. It's just like, oh, okay, like you lit him on fire and you're okay. Like we just like loaded Chekhov's gun after we fired it, and I just don't understand like what happened there or why that was funny or anything about that moment. Yeah. Hey, remember remember that gun on the wall? I'm gonna fire it right now. Wasn't that fucking cool? <laughs> yeah, and and too much. I'm gonna put this back on the wall. I'll use it later. Don't worry. <laughs> This is actually Chekhov's gun, which I will use to, to murder Chekhov. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, okay. So, so to Matt's credit, like I actually, I, I totally agree that like all the fights serve a purpose in in character terms and tell you something about that. But but my issue with it's more about the violence and and the 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 way it's presented because Del Toro to me does very good visceral, painful violence. Yeah. And and it, that's in this movie. Does like he? I feel like anything. I feel like he does in in like Pan's Labyrinth. There's a lot uh, of that. But what other movies? Because uh, like I'm drawing on mine. Like what I know of him, not. I'm just saying I think in Pacific, that movie, it's Rim. very very good. Right, that, but I don't think that that's necessarily. And actually, in this movie, what it's, Del Toro it, does the most of. Not the most, I should say. He just does it very well. Shape of he Water was similar too. Like every time somebody got hurt in that movie, like you fucking felt it. Well, I think this is maybe perhaps the start of that, because Blade Two was like his first big action film. Right. This is like his next sort of action outing. I think when we look at something like Shape of Water, we see a mature Del Toro. Yes. Like he's like really refined his storytelling. He's refined who he is, and I I do think like this film is very influential on The Shape of Water because The Shape of Water is the story, I think, that... Because he wants to tell the story about fatherhood yeah. and becoming a man. Like, that's very clearly and transparently talked about in the plot of the film. And, you know, you can see it sort of percolating, trying to be a focus, but not really successfully doing that, I think. Whereas, like, in The Shape of Water, love as this elemental force that is not necessarily communicated via language that is very clearly a thesis he doesn't say it outright but he uses various other aspects of the story to tell that story yeah which i think is like del toro at the height of his power as it were like he does a great job there yeah so the impression i get is i mean honestly i'm just gonna throw it out there the only del toro movie i'd seen before this was pan's labyrinth which isn't really fair because that is an excellent amazing movie this felt like, and and knowing he did Blade Two before this, it felt like he he got these superhero movies, and I feel like he does violence like that very well, and then I feel like he 
also was kind of given a thing where it's like you're doing a comic book movie, so not everybody's gonna get stabbed and like viscerally, and the shot's gonna show it hurt like that. You know, like we can't do that all the time, or it's just violent and gory and and that's not what what that's not the tone you always want from a comic book. So like we also have scenes where like. Hellboy is under a subway car and he's it's clanging off his horns and they get really hot. You know what I mean? Like it's it's goofier mm-hmm. and not serious at all. And the things I feel like they just don't. It's like oil and water. Like anything with like the Nazi, um, the mass Nazi character is like holy shit. It's it's really stylized and visceral and and I I was kind of really into it. Uh, I feel like. You're approaching it as though, say you're, you've are you never read a Batman comic or watched a Batman movie, and the first one you watch is, like, Dark Knight, and then you try and go mm-hmm. and watch the one whatever has, like, fucking Poison Ivy in it, and you're like, this can't possibly be the same series, and you're like, but it is, it's just a different interpretation, so if, yeah, if all you had seen up until now was Pan's Labyrinth, I can see how you might think that, but I know that, like, when I saw this, like, Pan's Labyrinth came out, let's see, I've seen Blade 2, I've seen Hellboy, Hellboy 2... Um, Pacific Rim. So, like, to me, I've seen Del Toro do, like, the dip into, like, more serious stuff, which is great, but I don't see that as his typical. No, for sure. I think the problem for me is that both things are in this movie. If, if, if that was, like, if that element was removed out of this movie and there wasn't visceral violence and, um, and very serious, like, I feel like the last half, after his, his dad dies, it, takes that kind of turn and it feels like that serious tone darker tone and i'm like okay and then there's some of the fight scenes are like that and some of them aren't like i said it just doesn't mesh for me and maybe maybe pan's labyrinth is educating that a little bit but it also like just during the movie i felt like that's just every scene feels different and it feels like not not in a different kind of like novel way it's just like i i don't know where we're going or why we're going there it's like a crazy weird non-connected set of things tonally just nothing's connected by tone it's it's just it's like i'm being whipped around um there's actually like i think his name's manning Mm -hmm. the shithead the chief shithead Mm -hmm. guy jeffrey tambor's character yeah who we're supposed to hate for like most of the movie i found myself agreeing with him which is it i really felt like i'm not supposed to be doing this this (laughs) is bad because he he was like Hellboy had the big goofy fight with the kittens and shit, and I mean that's that felt like Batman the movie, you know, with Adam West where he's got the bomb and it's it's campy and it's like okay, but then it's like it's like yeah, and then he's like oh wait that guy I like died the agent with the hair plugs oh no I'm sad and then the guy's like yeah we had a bunch of people die because you were goofing off and I'm like well, <laughs> yeah what are we supposed to be thinking here what am I supposed to think I don't know <laughs> so. I, I just felt like that throughout the movie. I don't know. Maybe I'm watching it wrong. <laughs> well, it's also, this is coming out um, after sort of the success of the Spider-Man movies. And there might have been that pre- that studio pressure to deliver another franchise or like to have the potential to start a franchise. Like, from my vantage as a person that read a lot of the Hellboy comics, I feel this film takes on a bit too much. It bites off more than it can chew. Yeah. And tries to deliver a complete Hellboy experience. Whereas I think it could have been served a little bit better by just giving people a taste and starting to explore that instead of jumping right to Rasputin summoned me, I'm going to bring about the end of the world. And I think this is a trope I think that make superhero um, origin stories sometimes bad. So I think back to the Green Lantern film starring Ryan Reynolds. And I don't know if any of y'all have seen it. 
uh, I had the misfortune of seeing it. <laughs> in the film, he gets mentored by the greatest Green Lantern, trained by a whole bunch of Green Lanterns, and then fights the biggest, baddest enemy the Green Lantern Corps has ever fought and wins. You kind of give yourself, like, where do you go from there? What is the next development for that character? I would have much more enjoyed a Green Lantern movie where he discovers this, like, crazy-ass ring, kind of fights some, like, humans with it, and then at the end of the film is like, oh my god, there's a whole other universe of these people and things that can do things. Like, you want to build up on these things, and I think at the time that we're back then, you know, every single superhero franchise entree was like, I have to give you the full 10-course meal. Yeah. I have to give you... From appetizers to the main course to dessert. Spider-Man, Green Goblin. Batman, Joker. You know, this we have to start at that point because the audience won't connect to it any other way. Yeah, and and when that, like, when the flash-forward prophecy scene happened in this movie, I was like, whoa, this is crazy and cool. And, like, what I want out of this movie. And then I was like, well, I actually don't even want it to happen in this movie because there's, like, 30 minutes left or 40 minutes left. (laughs) <laughs> They're not even going to be able to build this. Like, there's no way. Yeah, how can yeah, we possibly once... tell this story? And and once you get to it, it's like, eh. It's, I mean, it's good, but it's it's kind of a letdown because you can't give me that kind of taste of that. And then be like, well, in 40 minutes, you know, you'll see. And it's it's kind of like, man, like, I, I was hoping maybe they'll do this in the sequel. That would be great. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where... Um, and, I'm, I mean, I've actually heard very good things about the sequel to this, so... Um, I'd be totally willing to give it a shot. I'll, I'll say, like, I didn't really... It has a lot more focus to it. And there's a lot I more d- opportunity for Del Toro character designs to, to peek through, and that's very cool. The designs are great. I didn't really hate many... I didn't really dislike many of the characters. I mean, Liz is problematic. The the human fish... The, the human uh, character... Abe Sapien. Yes. D- p- played brilliantly by Doug Jones, who now is on Star Trek Discovery. Well, I meant Myers. He's... But Abe's great. But Myers is like, he's boring nothing, but I don't like hate him. He's just, he just kind of has to be in the movie, quote unquote. And every other character is like, great. It's more just the, I, I feel like it was, it was like, we, we have to start somewhere. Everybody's got to find their way. Like Del Toro has to find his way through what he wants to do somehow. You know, he can't make like his masterpiece right off the bat. So, I mean, it. It had a lot of promise. It had a lot of great things. We do need to have a Doug Jones appreciation moment because he is like one of the best character actors in Hollywood. And I think this helped establish him. Like he was definitely, he was in Buffy too, but he didn't have any speaking lines. Uh, in this movie, he was overdubbed by David Hyde Pierce. Um, in case y'all didn't know that, who was uncredited. Um, and in the second movie, it is Doug Jones um, actual voice, which is why it seems so weird if you like, watch Hellboy 1 and then immediately go to Hellboy 2 and you're like, that's not the same voice. Mm. Um, it's because Niles Niles, Fre- uh, Niles Crane dubbed him <laughs> in this one, but said that he felt like he did a disservice to, to Doug, Doug Jones' acting. So he didn't do it for the second one. Wow, he's been on a lot of stuff. What was he in Pan's He was the Fawn. Oh, he was yeah, the no, Fawn. He's, wow. he's super tall and really lanky. And I think we have this same... I think he, he has Marfrans too. So he's like super like bendable. So he does mostly character acting. In Pan's Labyrinth, I believe he was pretty much all of the non-human characters. Um, like he <laughs> was the the, the eye wow. guy. He's the fawn. And Buffy, he was like one of the other creepy things. And this, he's Abe. 
He's great. Well, the uh, doctor. Yeah, he's yeah. in. Like, yeah, he's he's he does so much stuff because he's an amazing um, character actor who apparently is just has a lot of fun with it. I remember his interview uh, about the Shape of Water because he came back for that character yes. as well. Uh, he did because he was just like, oh, a monster, but he gets to fuck. Yeah, I'm down. <laughs> the best kind <laughs> I, of monster. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, watching this, I was like. Once once Abe showed up, I was like, oh, the Shape of Water guy is in this movie. I think it's what they based this it on, yeah. Come. And in the second movie, he has more action scenes. So you get to see him, like, flailing about in his little lanky way as a fish man. Um, <laughs> but, like, in a really... He's really good at it. He just shows, like, how, like, um, I feel like acrobatic he kind of is. Like, how bendy he is. And you see more of that in the, in the second movie. But uh, I love Doug Jones. But I thought it was important to point out that... Um, even David Hyde Pierce was like, no, he acted way better and didn't deserve to have my voice like dubbed over. Wow. Yeah, he's he's really great. Him and Ron Perlman are just such great testament to what actors can do that are skilled through prosthetics. The creature design like is definitely like amazing. The in the second one in the second movie, like I remember like that was what drew me in, was just like I cannot believe how much further they went with like creature creation and character design with prosthesis and and all that stuff um specifically like the angel of death and second one but i'll try not to get on that because it's not related to what we're doing now um (laughs) but as someone like who who dabbles as as a hobbyist and like you know theatrical type like makeup and costuming obviously it's one of the, the big selling points for me in this um in this movie i do want to point out just one thing and it's not really related to anything specific that we're talking about, but um, for someone who's supposed to be like an expert in the occult, Professor Broom, you should know better than to associate the death card with actual death. It means change, okay? God, <laughs> it's the tarot. It's never at face value. God. Just really get it right. Get it right. I can't Broom. believe you. We know. We know you listen to the podcast, okay? <laughs> So he's just like, oh, do you want a second opinion? And he like turns it over in the tarot cards and it's death. And it's just like, no, I won't need that. That doesn't mean anything. That means. It's a classic trope. Yeah. It's just like, man, for someone who's supposed to be like, again, like an expert in all things occult or like religious. It's just like, I'm just disappointed in you, Professor Broom. I did love John Hurt in the role. That was really charming. Yeah. He does a great job. And I think I appreciate the story because the whole father son dynamic it's something that Mignola sort of touches on the books, but doesn't really bring as strong a focus on. I did appreciate Del Toro trying to make this film about assuming fa- uh, manhood, as it were, and like what does it mean when you lose your father? Um, that's a theme that I think I don't see often in superhero stories. Uh, you mean except for I mean, like, Guardians like, of the Galaxy too? Spider Man <laughs> and Dark Knight and yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, parenthood is like a huge theme of superhero stories in general. Like basically, every superhero is adopted or an orphan, and like yeah. Hellboy is just no different. Yeah, or in Star Wars, you know, parentage is so crucial to to so many stories um then then maybe it's the the manhood piece i think i don't see a lot of them engaging with manhood as a construct i don't think that the movie answers it particularly well you know in sense of like hellboy's relationship to liz he starts to get a better sense i think of like for um of living a life for others or at least considering others but he's still kind of selfish at the end of the film i feel yeah, I feel like the strangest thing for me in this movie in regards to, to 
his character and his background is that he's he's trapped in this lab like or or this this whatever it is headquarters his whole life and he can't leave and i mean he does he he does like make you know it, it gets the point as like oh he's broken out five times da, 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 da. but i don't know i feel like that character would react so strongly in opposition to that especially at that point in that character's livelihood I, if it, like 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 when uh, Myers goes to the lab and sees Hellboy for the first time, and I don't even remember how old he is, but you can just deduce it from how much older the professor is or whatever. It's like he's been he's been staying in this lab all this time, and he's just kind of consigned to it. And I don't know. I, I I feel like it would have been just from the story perspective, it would have made more sense if he was like ten years older or. 15 years old and he was like i'm fed up with being in this fucking lab i gotta get out and and make my own way and do my like it just doesn't really happen ever i don't again and and the comics are just vignettes so they're probably they probably go in a completely different direction and it isn't even an issue uh without looking it up how long about is two hours movie? i think two hours ten yeah That's okay a- all right, it is. It's 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 just over two hours. It felt like it felt like two and a half to three hours. <laughs> it felt so long. I feel like it, probably because of the love triangle, we were we were just going and going and going. So it's probably just. I do appreciate that this film is unabashedly anti-Nazi, which is a charming thing to find in two thousand four and harder to find in twenty nineteen. I felt bad because that I feel like that Nazi character is not the. Rasputin's girl, but the assassin. Yeah, does it have a name? Does the character have a name? Cronin. He does. It's Cronin. Yeah, it's the same as the comics. He actually is in the comics as well. He doesn't have. The, he's not like Hellboy's nemesis, but he's definitely a character that is a representation of like Nazi occults. Okay, uh, I felt really bad because every time that character showed up, this fucking character rules. I love this. And I'm like, ah, they're Nazi though. I can't, I can't like the Nazis. Really <laughs> you can bad. like the character design though. That's totally oh, fine. It's so good. It's very like, good. Just, and as in, yeah, I definitely got the feeling like Mike Mignola must've, must've came up with this and it's just so like great. Everything about it, the, the way they fight, the, the dust thing. Um, once they do the autopsy scene, it's so, it's so I don't know if that cool. was Mignola. Oh yeah. Again, like if you, it's not like a lot of other co- comic books where you have it spelled out in front of you. Like again, like you gotcha. see them in Hellboy, but the purpose of Hellboy is that he's inserted into, like I said, like old folklore, like in- including, like say, like old Japanese myths. Oh. He's put into these positions, but you don't. He's. It's not like other comics where you have a whole backstory that's lined up and his powers. You're just kind of thrust in there, and you kind of learn as you go, like what his backstory kind of is. But it's not even usually the more central part of it gotcha like like he encounters the baba yeah. yaga right um from russian folklore and the baba yaga tells him things about himself and that's how we learn about the character because she prophesies about him yeah i like that a lot it, it feels kind of like like the sandman type universe where where there's just all this occult stuff and and demon name demons and stuff that show up and but but this feels a little looser than that this is that thing and this is that thing it's more like Ooh, you're you're just in this crazy. All this stuff's real, and you don't know what's what. I, I do love basically any of these sorts of pieces, like like Sandman and like this. I, I love the 
that concept of taking the real world stuff and or not the real world stuff but the folklore stuff and translating it and turning it into this whole universe of existence because it feels so much more real and like ooh like maybe this is the thing that 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 caused the legends to be and like i don't know it just makes it a little more fun to be a part of it i guess so what would people's takeaway from the film be would you recommend this to someone else um what's your final thoughts on the film yeah i mean i definitely think it's worth watching like i i definitely loved it a lot as a kid and some of the and and part of it is like a little bit of aging special effects and a little bit of my like being jaded in general um but it's a it's a pretty fun movie there's you know moments and there's like sequences that just don't make a lot of sense but especially like if you're a del toro fan and like you really like pan's labyrinth and the shape of water and stuff it's it's really cool to see his earlier work and be like oh yeah he did get better that's that's kind of cool yeah um i feel like i definitely would recommend it there's i mean even though you know it was like above average for me i feel like there's so much great directorial stuff uh there's so many amazing visuals in it um and character work and design um like i feel like all the characters will definitely stay with me a lot of the visuals will stay with me mm-hmm. the story i will probably forget what even happened before i see it again if i if i see it again but like that stuff is is very good so i feel like that's it's it's a good it's a good watch yeah Katie? oh yeah i like it sorry i figured that was that was obvious pretty clear from yeah. the, the whole episode <laughs> oh i mean I, I love it i watched it a bunch of times but uh fuck off for this is uh you know it's of course <laughs> um i think this is a really interesting film to watch for seeing i think a young del toro in his um directing career and to kind of look at this film and then watch the things later on that he's really around for like shape of water or pan's labyrinth and i think you start to see Del Toro's director starting to explore some of those things and those themes that he really um, gets to play with more later on. So um, I liked it. I think Ron Perlman's great. The second film is, you know, as Katie mentioned, even better. Mm. So um, I'd highly recommend that one as well. I'm excited to watch that. Yeah. Next week, we'll be discussing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with a special guest. And we'll see you then. Um, until then, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, uh, on Twitter at Second Star Cast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.